Good morning, everyone. Boker Tov. Okay. This morning we have the privilege of studying Parshas Vayishlach together. Page 170 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. And Parshas Vayishlach picks up. Where the last Parsha left off, that's correct. Works out well, works out nicely each week. Parshas Vayishlach. So uh, what happens? Yaakov has taken his wives and children, they've fled from Lavan, and he is going to reconcile, to reunite with his brother, with Esav. He hasn't seen his brother in how long? 34 years since he left home. And he's going to see Asa for the first time, and he doesn't know what he's going to find. He doesn't know who he's going to meet. He doesn't know what's going to be. And so he prepares himself, the parasha tells us. Again, we'll do our overview, and then we'll get into an analysis of uh, some specific psukim together. But the Torah tells us that Yaakov prepares by doing three things. And in fact, these are the three things that we are to do as we continue to confront our enemies through the ages. Gemara Chazal tell us, that when Rabbi, whenever Rabbi Yudah Nasi would visit the Roman governor on behalf of the Jewish people, it was Parshas Vayishlach. When a Jew would go meet a leader of a foreign nation, it was Parshas Vayishlach they would read in order to strengthen themselves, in order to guide them and how to behave. So what does Yaakov do in anticipation of his reunion with Esav? Three things. He sends gifts, diplomacy. He prepares for war divides his camps and arms them. And the third thing he does is, he davens. The davening one is kind of peculiar. The truth is, to a certain degree, all three are peculiar, and all three are even somewhat heretical. Because to take that level of initiative in order to prepare, be it diplomacy, be it girding for war, or be it prayer, flies in the face of Hashem's promise. Hashem told Yaakov, you have nothing to worry about. I'm going to take care of you and your children. You have a bright future and a continuity. And Yaakov seems not to accept. In fact, the Torah tells us that Yaakov is skeptical. Vayira Yaakov mo'od vayetzerlo. Vayira, he was very afraid. Vayetzerlo. He had anguish. He had anxiety. He was very stressed out over the fear of meeting, of meeting Esav. What was he so afraid of if Hashem had promised? So Rashi says, It's a very powerful Rashi. It's reminiscent of Golda Meir's famous words. Golda Meir said, We can forgive our enemies for killing us. We can't forgive them for making our sons into killers. For having to have an army and having to battle, having to fight and having to kill. So Yaakov was afraid. Why both verbs? Rashi says he was afraid he would be killed. And he was even more afraid. He was also afraid he would have to he would have to kill. Shema Yigro Machet. Yaakov was worried that he was in fact inadequate. He was unworthy. That he didn't have the virtue that would merit the, the protection of the divine. But doesn't this fly in the face? Hashem made him a promise. Hashem said, Yaakov, I'll be with you. I will be with you. I will guard you everywhere you go. So why is Yaakov afraid now? So afraid in fact that he has to take these three initiatives that he takes these three steps. What is he so afraid of? What is he so afraid of? So, 
I understand the gifts in the war. The gifts in the preparing for war are the initiative. In life we have to find the balance between taking initiative and placing our trust in Hashem. Hashkach HaPratis and Hishtadlus. When do I have to take initiative? And when do I rely on Hashem? We have to find the balance. Some fail by being excessive in initiative. If you work 22 hours a day and only two hours for all sleeping, seeing your family, taking care of yourself, that's excessive initiative. If Hashem wants to make you rich working 16 hours a day, He'll make you rich working 16 hours a day. It's excessive. On the other hand, there are people who have excessive emunah. They sit home on the couch and they say, Hashem will provide, Hashem will support, Hashem will take care. I don't have to take initiative at all. Our job as Jews is to find that balance between the two. So even if Yaakov trusted Hashem and trusted the promise that Hashem was going to guard and protect and take care of him, he had to take the initiative of engaging in diplomacy, sending gifts to Esau, and preparing for war. Both are forms of initiative. The real question is, why did he daven? Why did he daven? Hashem says, I got your back, you're taking care of, you're all good. And Yaakov says, that's nice, but give me a few minutes to daven. It doesn't seem... It doesn't seem logical. Why does Yaakov daven? So I want to suggest a reason, several reasons which are given. I think we may have even spoken about it in the past. But I want to suggest a reason which really speaks to the core of what tefillah, what prayer is all about. We assume that it is our prayer which asks Hashem, Hashem responds positively to our prayer and He grants us bracha, He grants us blessing because we pray. But really that's not true. If you go to the beginning of Sefer Bracious, you see that Hashem coordinated, He built, He constructed the entire world. However, the earth, the soil did not yet put forth. It did not blossom. Why? There was not yet man created who would pray for the rain. Even though those things were created earlier in the week, rain didn't start till the sixth day. And the earth wasn't going to blossom, wasn't going to sprout until the rain was created. And why didn't rain fall until the sixth day? Because there wasn't man yet to benefit, to enjoy, to be grateful for the rain. But even more so, there was no man to what? To pray for the rain. Even when Hashem, you see from here says Rav Pinkus in his introduction to Sharm B'Tfilah, even when Hashem has storehouses of bracha, when He's prepared to grant us enormous blessings, the way to access that blessing, the key to open the door to that storehouse of blessing is tefillah, is prayer. It's not that Hashem wasn't going to give us the bracha until we davened. Hashem's allocated, He's delegated, He designated bracha for us. But we can't access the bracha until we daven. Because God's egotistical? Absolutely not. Why? Because the Ribbon Shalom craves a relationship with us. And just like my children who are now out of my home, the best way I know to get them to call is not to give them a credit card, but to set them up with a debit card. And why a debit card over a credit card? Even a credit card has a limit, but even my children don't come close to hitting that limit. But why a debit card over a credit card? Because when the debit card runs low, they've got a call to ask to put more money on it. The best way to a relationship is, I have the money, no problem. I have, I'm ready to give it to my children. I want them to be happy. I want them to be successful. I want them to concentrate on their studies. I want them to be happy. 
So I'm prepared to give them the money. But first they have to call. Why? Because I'm so egotistical? Because I'm such a control freak? Because I'm an egomaniac? No, because I want a relationship. Now, I have wonderful children. They would call debit card, no debit card. They're fantastic children, particularly if any of them are listening to this. They're especially fantastic. <laughs> and I love them the most of all the other children. But I'm safe, don't worry. Nobody's listening. I'm good. So there's a debit card, because even though the money is there and ready and waiting, I want them to ask before I open, before I put the money on the card. So the Rebona Shalom wants us to ask even when he's ready. So it's not a steer, it's not a contradiction that Hashem says, Yaakov, I got your back, I'll guard you wherever you go. And then Yaakov's going to daven. It's not that Yaakov didn't believe Hashem would guard him unless he davened. He knew Hashem was going to make good on the promise. But you can't collect the promise until you daven. What's the mashal? You know the $1.5 billion lottery winner has yet to collect the winning. In some gas station in South Carolina, the ticket was sold. We know exactly where it was sold. The highest winning ever in a lottery, $1.5 billion. And it's yet to be collected. You understand what that means now? There's all kinds of articles about why that is and the strategy of whoever has the ticket. They're setting up LLCs and accounts and attorneys and, and wealth managers and they're putting it all in place to protect their anonymity because otherwise winning the lottery ruins your life. Halavai, we should be tested. So, <laughs> so the person hasn't collected Hasn't collected. But you don't understand what that means. There's someone out there who's holding a little slip of paper the size of a receipt. Someone's holding a little piece of paper. The piece of paper itself is worth less than a penny. The value of the paper is less than a penny. But the value of the paper is $1.5 billion. It'll change not their life, and not their children's life or their grandchildren's life. It will change their descendants forever. The $1.5 billion, hopefully for the good. However, there's $1.5 billion with their name on it, but it's not in their account. Until when? Until they turn on the ticket. You say, well, why does it turn on the ticket? It's a technicality. Who has to turn on the ticket? I won. I got the numbers. Just transfer it to my account. $1.5 billion. Now, Kozman, as long as you're sitting on the ticket and you haven't cashed it in, you don't get the money. Yeah, you won. And yeah, there's $1.5 billion waiting for you. But you don't have one penny of it until you turn on the ticket. And we have all kinds of bracha that Akash Baruch Hu has designated ready for us. But tefillah is our lottery ticket. You got to turn in the ticket. You got to offer the tefillah, the prayer to win. So it's not that Yaakov distrusts Hashem. It's not that he's heretical, it's not that he's rejecting Hashem's promise, it's that he understands that his responsibility, the way, the means to cash in on that promise that will be protected is through tefillah. So he gets ready for war, because he has to take initiative. He has to be smart. And he offers gifts, diplomacy, because that's part of initiative. But included in his list of things he does is daven, because davening is part of the part of the attitude, part of the approach. It's part of what is necessary for us. Yaakov references, when he's getting ready for this reunion, the Torah says, He sends these messengers and he says, Here's the message. You ready, Esav? You want to know how I'm doing? Here's the message. 
I'm so sorry, it's been a long time. We haven't thrown a ball around, we haven't had a cup of coffee, we haven't been able to spend time together. Not because I don't love you, not because I don't feel bad about when we last left off, but I've been a little preoccupied. I was building a family, I was being tricked and manipulated. And it delayed me until now. And Rashi famously comments in Love and Garti, Ve Tayag Mitzvah Shamarti. What Yaakov was really taking, telling Esav was, lest you think I've assimilated, lest you think I've lost my way, lest you think that you're going to see all the wealth that my emissary, my ambassador, my agent is bringing and represents, and therefore I've lost my, my compass. Im Lavangarti, Vitariag Mitzvah Shamarti. No, I was able to live in a foreign land. I was able to live absorbed in a different culture, but Vitariag Mitzvah Shamarti, I didn't compromise an iota of who I am. And Rabbi Soloveitchik points out he says, Yaakov was taken away from this parental home and experienced a long night of darkness, misery, and distress. He was burdened with the mission of proving to the world that the covenantal community was capable of practicing Avram's unique moral code by living a lifestyle of saintliness not only in the promised land, but in exile, far from the hills and valleys of Hebron and Shechem. In Lavan Garti, the Tariq Mitzvah Shamarti, Yaakov stayed with Lavan for 20 years, enough time to settle down and become a citizen of Haran, to consider himself a veteran resident of Haran. It should have said, Im Lavan Yashavti. Really, 20 years is a very long time to live somewhere. You're a resident of the city. Even the halachic definition of how long you're in a city, 30 days, how long you de- define before you're considered a resident of a city, to have the status of that city. Do you lay in Megillah? You're part of the walled city, you're outside the walled city. When are you obligated to pay taxes? When do you have to contribute to the community fund to enable every Jewish child to get a Jewish education? What is the status of when you become a resident? Yaakov, according to all the opinions, was a resident. 20 years he lived with Lavan. He should have said, Im Lavan, Yashafti. I was a resident. I settled with Lavan. But he doesn't. He says, Im Lavan, Garti. He felt a stranger in Haran, the way his son Yosef later felt a stranger in Egypt. He had not assimilated. He had not integrated himself into Lavan society and community. He had not accepted their morals, their code of ethics, or their lifestyle. He sojourned in Haran for a long time, yet he preserved his moral religious identity. His commitment to the God of Avram, his commitment to the way of life sanctioned, his commitment to the promised land, all those commitments and many more were not affected at all. Yaakov was as dedicated at the end of his 20 years of servitude in Lavan's house as he was the first night he spent on the cold stones in Beit El when he pledged that he'll walk with Hashem. At the completion of his sojourn in Haran, the angel of Hashem revealed himself to Yaakov, in other words, you remain loyal to your spiritual heritage and faith in me. Yosef was burdened with a similar task. He again had to prove that Avram's covenant could be practiced outside the promised land. The moral laws are not contingent upon geography and chronology. The difference between Yaakov and Yosef's assignment is a dual one. First, Yaakov had to prove that the Torah is realizable in poverty and oppression, that the immigrant, no matter how hard he has to work for a livelihood, no matter how poor and oppressed is capable if he makes up his mind to give devotion and loyalty to his ancestral tradition, Yosef's mission was to demonstrate that enormous success, unlimited riches, admiration, prominence, and power are not in conflict with the saintly covenantal life. The immigrant, no matter what his destiny turns out to be, glorious success or miserable failure, can, if he possesses the heroic quality of either Yaakov or Yosef, 
attend to his commitment. And second, Yaakov had to manifest his heroic quality in a backward country. Haran was a pastoral camp. Yosef demonstrated his heroic action in the most advanced civilization in antiquity of Egypt. So here the Rav really describes the Jewish story of the 20th century. Many of our parents or grandparents or some in this room came to exile to the new world, the new country, America. And they had to prove in love on Garti that we could live even with the poverty and even with having to work just to provide and support ourselves, we could do so without compromising an iota of our moral compass, of our religious convictions of who we are. Some couldn't withstand that challenge and worked on Shabbos and we don't sit in judgment of them. They were fighting to survive. That's the origin of the Hashkama Minyan. People think, young people think, Hashkama Minyanim began because of the Haileg of who wanted to learn all Shabbos morning. They wanted a Chabura. Hashkama Minyanim began in America because of those who wanted to daven early and then needed to be able to get to work. And of course, it's not correct, but we're not sitting in judgment either of them. We didn't walk in their shoes and we didn't understand that challenge. But there were heroes. There were heroes who got a new job every Monday because they were fired every Friday when they refused to come to work on Shabbos. There were such heroes all over this country. They were Bebechinus Yaakov Avinu. Yaakov leaves the comfort of his father's home. He leaves the, the ghettos of, of the pre-Holocaust, the shtetls, I should say, of Europe, where there was a religious lifestyle and it was accommodated for and everyone was comfortable. And they came to America, and like Yaakov, who went to love on home and had to figure out how do you work faithfully? How do you earn a livelihood? How do you provide for your family? But still, not compromise at all in who you are. And there were heroes in this country who did that. My grandfather went into education. He ultimately rose to become the superintendent of schools in Elizabeth, New Jersey. But he was in the public school system because that was the only job that you could not have to work on the weekend. It was the only line of work, the only profession to go into. You did not have to compromise. And there were those who lost their job. There were those who had tremendous mysterious nefesh. And that Yaakov, Maisa Avos Simon Lebanon, Yaakov provided and planted within us that strength. In love on Garti. On the other hand, you had Yosef. Yosef goes to Egypt. Doesn't start this way. But ultimately, he rises to such success. And I would argue, this is our challenge. The illness of affluenza of what do you do when you've achieved success and when you've achieved, by all measures, wealth and you have luxury and you're going away for Pesach and you have all kinds of seven kitchens, milchiks, fleshiks, Pesach, parav, every kitchen you can imagine. You have uh, the um, vegan kitchen, your vegetarian kitchen, your, your fleish kitchen. This is the world that we live in today. So how do you make sure in love Garti that with affluence you don't assimilate? See, the two fears. In poverty you could assimilate because you just can't maintain your values and provide for your family. In affluence you could assimilate because you have it all. You just want to live in the country club. You want to live the country club lifestyle. You want to be like everybody else. And this is Yaakov and Yosef. Yaakov is the model of malacha, of doing work with integrity and yet without religious compromise. And Yosef is the model of achieving affluence. Both live in the exile. Both live in foreign countries, foreign cultures. And both succeed in not compromising who they are. Very important comment of the Rav. That it's not in love on Yashavti. I didn't become a full resident. I didn't integrate. I didn't assimilate. It was in love on Garti. How, with these words, the Rav is pointing out. 
with these words is the secret to Yaakov's success. Why did Yaakov walk out of love and Soma unscathed? Why did he walk away uncompromised in who he was? Because he brought an attitude of Garti, not Yashafti. Because the whole time he was there, for 20 years, he never unpacked his suitcase. For 20 years he said, I'm here, but I'm not entirely here. I'm a participant, I'm a resident, but I'm also a stranger and I'm a foreigner. And we've shared many times, this is the Rav's insight, where did Yaakov get this mentality from his grandfather from Avram? That when Avram is buying a plot of land to bury his wife, and he's negotiating with Bnei Ches, he says to them, Ger v'toshav anochi imachem. And the Rav said, this is the mandate of every Jew in exile. While we're living in this magnificent country, for which this week in particular we have such thanksgiving and gratitude for what it has afforded us and the religious freedom it's given us, that we, our mission, our job, is to simultaneously be ger v'toshav anochi imachem. I'm a Toshav, I'm a resident, I'm a participant, I vote in the elections, and I lobby, and I advocate, and I care, and I contribute to the general society around me. I'm an absolute Toshav. I'm a resident, I'm proud, patriotic, and I care. But a Jew at the same time must remain a Ger. I'm also a stranger. I'm never fully absorbed or integrated or chas v'shalom assimilated. I feel comfortable, I contribute, I participate, but... At the same time, I maintain boundaries and I have the acute awareness at all times, the mindfulness, that gear. I'm still a stranger. I'm still different. My moral values are different. And my dress is different. And my attitude is different. My accountability is different. And how I calibrate success and how I measure meaning ultimately is different than the world and the culture and the pop culture around me. So Avram lived it, Ger Machem, and here Yaakov, not in Lavan Yashavti, but in Lavan Garti. How did he walk away after 20 years? Because he said, I'm still a Ger. If our children, it's a topic for another time, go to secular college campuses, it has to be at the end of four years, on that campus Garti, not Yashavti. If they're going to walk away, Shomer Shabbos and Shomer Kashrus, if they're going to have a hope, in an observant Torah future after their time on that campus, we need to empower them and inspire them to bring an attitude not of Yashavti, but Garti. Yes, I was there. Yes, I benefited. I drew all the best of what I could. But I was a Ger. I'm a stranger. I don't, I don't measure my life the same way. So I find this to be a very powerful and very important comment or insight by the Rav here. Yaakov and Yosef, both of them, how we have the strength to persevere even in, even in exile. They uh, come back. He does these three preparations. And then we have the famous struggle. Yaakov leaves Pacham Ketanim. It's an allusion to Hanukkah. The Pacham Ketanim, the Pach Shemen. Chazal see an allusion to Hanukkah in this parsha, And he goes back to retrieve them. And he goes back to retrieve them by himself. Now, we've spent a lot of time on this in the past. You can listen online on Why Torah. Previously we discussed what was Yaakov wrestling with this. Yaakov is back by himself. He goes back by himself. And because he's by himself, he's vulnerable. He wrestles the whole night long. And we've discussed previously, and then it's commemorated. Yaakov wins in the morning. He has a conversation with this angel. What's your name? What's your name? And then Yaakov limps away. He has a wound. And we commemorate that, that um, blemish, that wound, that injury 
by not eating the Gid Anasha Until today, we don't eat the sciatic nerve. We don't eat the, the Gid Anasha. We rely on tapering. So, we discussed in the past, I mean, what kind of... If you ask anyone, why don't we eat the Gid Anasha, they'll say, why don't we eat the Gid Anasha? It uh, reminds us that Yaakov wrestled with the angel and won. It's a very strange observance or celebration. Usually when we want to celebrate a triumph, we do it not by abstaining from eating something, but diving head in, head first, into eating something. Oh, we defeated the Yavonim. Let's not eat latkes for eight days. Let's not eat sufganiyot for eight days. Oh, we were freed from Egypt. No matzah, no matzah. Let's not eat for it. No, we, we always eat to celebrate a victory. Here, the Torah says, you're forbidden to eat something. That's how you're celebrating victory? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Again, we elaborated in the past. It's probably misunderstood. The Chizkuni, others have the opinion that the prohibition of Gidonash is not to celebrate the triumph, but rather it's to recognize that the whole reason Yaakov was in the position to get injured to begin with is he was Levado, he was by himself. A Jew never leaves another Jew by themselves. When a Jew is by themselves, they're vulnerable, they're exposed. That's when they get injured. To be a Jew is to be brothers, is to protect one another, is to care, is to show up for one another. And because Yaakov was left alone by his sons, he was vulnerable. Because he was vulnerable, he was injured. And yes, he triumphed. And the Jewish story is that we have always triumphed, but often we've limped away. We've suffered casualties. And when is it that we've suffered the most casualties? When we leave our brothers alone. When we have sin chinam, when we fight, when we marginalize when we leave people feeling lonely, when we leave them alone. And maybe that's really the story here. It's not of happiness and celebration and triumph, but it's a story of what happens when we leave a fellow Jew alone, the injury that's sustained that we continue to observe until today. We've also talked about what were Yaakov and this angel wrestling about. The Torah never tells us. And here I think is really the theme of the whole parasha. We'll see how long we have to build it up. But I think the theme of the parasha and really the theme of Yaakov's life, different than Avram and Yitzchak, the theme of our parsha in Yaakov's life is the theme of, if I have to have one word associated with Yaakov, it is struggle. Yaakov's life is characterized by struggle. So much so that later in life, we'll see, Yaakov is going to say to Hashem, Bikesh Yaakov leshev b'shalva. Yaakov's one request is, I just want to move into Century Village, Deerfield, Boca, I don't care which one. I want to play shuffleboard and tennis and mahjong. I want to lie by the pool with my safer. I want to have the wonderful early bird dinner and call it a day. B'kesh Yaakov Leshev B'Shalva. I'm done struggling. I'm done suffering. I'm done with hardship. I just want some tranquility, some peace. And what does Hashem do? That's when Yosef gets sold. Hashem says, you want peace and tranquility and quiet? That's not what your life is about. That's not who you're meant to be. That's not how you're meant to live. That's what you want right now? No problem. I'm about to give you the hardest episode of your whole life. Taking yours. What was so wrong with Yaakov wanting to... What was so wrong with that? Isn't that what we all want? A little peace and quiet. A little tranquility. A little serenity. What's so wrong with wanting that? That Hashem doesn't just say, you know, you'll get there, you'll retire, it'll happen. He, he visits upon him the hardest thing of Yaakov's life. So Yaakov's life is characterized by struggle. And we see it, we've already seen it. His childhood. The struggle began where? In the womb. He's wrestling with Esav in the room already. He's grabbing his ankle, he's pushing who's going to get out first. 
They're already wrestling when they passed the base Medrash and they passed the base Avodah He's in the womb, his struggle began. And it doesn't stop there. Getting the bracha from his father, being tricked with Leah and Rachel, having children with Rachel, with his own children, living in Lavan's home, being manipulated, deceived by Lavan, reuniting now with fear of, of Esav. His whole life is characterized by struggle. And here is the symbol or the epitome, the ultimate articulation of that struggle, is that he goes back to retrieve his pacham ketanim, vayavek ishimo, and he wrestles and he struggles the whole night long. The whole night he's struggling. The whole night he's wrestling. And what's he wrestling about? Look at the pasuk, look at the text. What's he wrestling about? The answer is, we have no idea. It doesn't tell us. Is he wrestling about power, fame, money, women? What does he wrestle over a woman? What's he wrestling about? Basalovichik says, the Torah never tells us what he's wrestling about. You know why? Because it doesn't matter. What matters is that he's engaged in the struggle. What it means to be alive is to be engaged in the struggle. What it means to be alive. If you're not struggling, you're not alive. If you have that serenity and that tranquility, if everything comes easy and everything is at absolute peace, now, struggle could be with a piece of chocolate cake. <laughs> struggle could be with which stock should I invest in? Struggle could be with which mesechta should I learn next or which shir should I go to or how do I review it so I can remember what we learned in the Chumash class. I don't mean existential struggle. I don't mean chalila, the most significant struggle, life and death and fertility and loan. Even smaller struggle. But the catalyst for, for growth is struggle. Right? A pearl grows in a clam. What does a pearl grow in? Won't they say, I forgot the science of it exactly. Oyster, thank you, the oyster. When the oyster is agitated and it's the secretions, it's the agitation that yields the pearl. I like pearls right now. But it's the, it's the, it's the struggle of the oyster that yields the beautiful, magnificent jewel of the pearl. And in life, the breakthrough moments for us come not when we have peace and tranquility, the breakthrough moments are the result of being engaged in a struggle, of wanting to improve, of trying to grow, of a willingness to run through a wall, of the ability to be in a struggle and to triumph. That is what it means to be alive. That's what it means to be alive. I don't remember if I shared this in Parshas Vayera. But Avram takes Yitzchak on the Akedah. And the Medrash tells us that in the entire three-day journey to the Akedah, all different forms of the Sat and the Yitzhahara confront Avram, trying to get him to give up. So the river rises, so he can't cross it. The satan takes several forms to try to say, give up. Nechama Leibavetz, Allah Shalom, has a beautiful interpretation that these were not external Yitzharas or satan, but they all represented different voices in Avram's own head, voices of doubt, voices of uncertainty. Could God really have asked me to do this? My, my son, the one I love, my legacy, my future? For another time. But he gets to the Akedah, and he lifts the knife, and the angel says, stop! Don't do it! And what does Avram do? Puts down the knife. And asks Rav Meir Shapiro, the Lublina Rav, Rosh Shiva of Lublin, the founder of the Dafyomi, how did Avram know that that wasn't the Yetzirah the Satan too? For three days, the Yetzirah has been saying, turn around, don't go, don't do this. This was a test to see if you'd go, you really shouldn't go to pass the test. And now the angel says, don't do it, put down the knife. How did Avram know to listen to the voice of the angel? It's a great question, right? And none of you ever thought about it before. It's a great question. 
So Rav Meir Shapiro says, you know how Avram knew? What did he see at the moment the angel said, put down the knife? What did he see? Vayar Sa'al, he saw the ram. And what was the ram doing? Was the ram, Leshev Bashalva? The ram was eating the grass in the meadow, basking in the sunlight. What was the ram doing? Playing Mahjong? The ram was struggling in the thicket. Rameer Shapiro says, when Avram saw struggle, he saw authenticity, he saw truth. He knew that where there's struggle, there's truth. And when he saw the ram struggling, he knew that voice he's hearing must be true. Where he saw struggle, he saw truth. And the same is with us. Where there's struggle, where there's effort, where there's a battle, that's where there's authenticity. That's where there's truth. So Yaakov is spending the whole night, and what is he doing? He's struggling. It's amazing. If you look at the Targum, Targum Unkelish translates the word Vaye Avek as Vishtadal. What is the word Vishtadal? Hishtadlus. Hishtadlus means effort, initiative. Vaye Avek. What was Yaakov doing? Ishtadal. He was doing Hishtadlus. You sit back on the couch with a sense of entitlement. Everything's coming to me. Everything should be provided for me. I'm entitled to everything. That's not an authentic life. Vayavik Ishimo, what was Yaakov doing the whole night? Vayavik Ishtadal, he was doing his shtadlus. He was doing his initiative. He was showing his effort. He was engaged in his struggle. And the Rambam references this Targum. He references this interpretation of Vayavik. The Mishnah says, Now we normally translate that as, if there's no one who's willing to chair the luncheon, you step up, you chair the luncheon. No one's throwing out the garbage, you stay after the kid, you throw out the garbage. In a place where no one else is doing what needs to be done, you step up and you should do what needs to be done. But that's not how the Rambam interprets it. Says the Rambam, the second paragraph of Avos, means in a place where there's no man, nobody to teach you, nobody to bail you out, nobody to allow you to feel entitled, nobody to be your model. What do you need to do? There's no one where we are. When you're in private, when there's no one around, be a man. When there's no one to tell you what to do, when there's no one giving you a handout, what do you need to do? Hishtadel lios ish. Vayeavik, said the Targum Ishtadel. Where did the Rambam know? Hishtadel lios ish. It means where there is no one else. What, where, who was Yaakov with that night? He was b'makom she'enan Hashem. Vayivasar Yaakov levado. In this interpretation, being alone is not a bad thing. For the Cheskuni, being alone was a bad thing. He was abandoned by his brothers. That's why we don't need to get a nasha to commemorate the consequence of abandonment. But according to this interpretation, being alone is a great thing. Sometimes we need to be alone. It's not a great thing all the time. We, our foundation of our belief is community. But at times, we need to be alone. We need quiet. We live in a society, a generation that has to have noise all the time. People, radio, phone, noise all the time. Sometimes quiet and aloneness is when you struggle. That's when you have breakthrough. That's when you hear your own inner voice. How could you hear your own inner voice? How can you battle your own inner demons or voices 
when there's always noise blocking them out. The only time you can even hear them or be aware of them and confront them and defeat them is when you're alone. He has some alone time, quiet time, disconnected time, so he can connect to himself and he battles. So says the Rambam, we recreate that Yaakov wrestling match. When you're in a place that there is no one else, no one to teach you, no one to mold you, no one to enable you, no one to entitle you. Hishtadl, do hishtadlis, vayayavik, wrestle, battle, struggle. That's exactly the pshat, and that's what's going on. And that's also what's happening in the conversation that takes place at the end here. What happens in this conversation at the end? What's the conversation between Yaakov and this angel? Vayishal Yaakov, vayomar haginin ha-shmecha, vayomar lamazah, Tishalashmi, Yaakov says, what's your name? You know, it's a handshake. You had a good boxing match. You had a good wrestling match. At the end, you shake hands. You part ways. You say, no. What's your name? And what does he answer him, the angel? Vayomer, he says, What are you asking for my name? I'm out of here. And he disappears. Chaim Shmulevitz and Sichos Musar has an entirely different interpretation. It's a great interpretation. He says, why? Why is Yaakov asking him his name? Why does he care about his name? You're wrestling with an angel of God? You're wrestling with your alter ego and you're asking for a name? And his answer is, what are you asking for my name? What do you mean? It's a reasonable question. So why are they wrestling only at night? And even most peculiar in this whole story, he gets a name at the end. What's his name? Yaakov's name is changed. And why is Yaakov's name is changed? What's the name changed to? Your name is no longer going to be Jacob, Yaakov. But now it's Yisrael. Why? Because you have wrestled with the divine and with man. And you have persevered. You've overcome. So let me ask you a question. Yaakov wrestles the whole night and he triumphs. He walks away. So what are you going to name him? Wrestle? Or triumph? Which is a more fitting name? If you really want to commemorate the moment and you want to give him a trophy and award for having succeeded, you're going to name him forever Triumph. Perseverance. Your name is Vatuchal. That should be his name. We're B'nai Vatuchal. But instead he gets the name Yisrael Kisarisa. Yisrael, because you wrestled. Wrestled? Do you get an award for wrestling? Everything. Our name is Yisrael, B'nai Yisrael, and the name Yisrael is from Kisarisa, Shabivatuchal. So Rechaim Shmulevitz has an entirely new interpretation, which is magnificent. It says Rechaim Shmulevitz, Musar, that when the angel responds to Yaakov and he says, Lamazatishalishmi, why are you asking my name? He wasn't rejecting the question and saying, why are you asking my name? He was answering the question. You want to know what my name is? My name is Lamazatishalashmi. My name is why are you asking my name? What does that mean? So Rechaim Shalavit says, what is a name? A name is a description. We believe a name is so much more than just a word we use so we're all talking about the same thing. We'll call this a chair so we all understand that we see this thing on four legs that you can sit on. It's called a chair. Chair is a random word. Chair means nothing. There's no inherent meaning to chair. It's just a word we've all agreed will be 
what we'll use for the chair. Now, in Judaism, a name is a description, it's the mahus, it's the essence of a person. Chazal tells us that parents have a certain level of nevuah. They tap into a certain degree of prophecy. When they give a name, they're giving a description to that person who then lives up to the potential, lives up to that name. We don't take names lightly. Names are very, very significant. Hashem passes all the animals in front of Adam to give their name because He's talking about their essence. So Rechaim Shalavit says, when Yaakov says, what's your name? He says, what makes you tick? What are you all about, alter ego? What's your mission, alter ego? What's your essence? What's your goal? And you know what he answers? You want to know what my goal is? For you to never ask that question. My goal, my name is Lama Zetishalashmi. My goal, my name is for you to never wrestle. For you to eat every piece of chocolate cake and cheesecake and bag of potato chips, to look at every image that comes across your screen and every person walking down the street. My goal is for you to never stop and wrestle with what's right versus wrong, but just to engage and enjoy everything that life offers. That's my name, says this angel. My name is Lama Zetishalashmi. My name, my goal is that you never stop and ask me my name. That you never stop and consider, that you never wrestle with what's the right thing to do. And now you understand why this wrestling match took place at night. Cloaked by darkness, a time of struggle. Not the brightness, the illumination of the day when there's clarity, but night, which is always associated with struggle. And now you understand why Yaakov's name is changed. Not to Vatuchal. We're not B'nai Vatuchal. Because the major essence, the theme of the story is not that he persevered. That's not the takeaway. What is the takeaway? Kisarisa. He wrestled. He got in the ring. Are you going to sit on the sideline? Are you going to sit and watch as a spectator? Or are we going to get in the game? The point is not Vatuchal, because sometimes we won't win. We don't always win. We can't always win. The question is not did we win, it's did we wrestle, did we try. Last week we spoke about that insight. That Yaakov grabs the heel of Esav, even though it's impossible for him to get out first. Why? His job is to show us Ishtadlas. And Hashem, 13 years later, rewards the Heshtadlas. Yaakov ends up being the firstborn when Hashem orchestrates things that Yaakov is able to buy the, the Bechorah. We do our effort, we struggle, we take the initiative, even when we're not Vatuchal. Even when in the moment it seems we haven't won or persevered, you never know how Hashem banks the initiative. We don't know how Hashem stores the effort and when the withdrawal will come. When the payday or the payoff will come. So what matters is not vatuchal. We're not b'nei vatuchal. Because what matters is not whether we perseveres, persevered. What matters is, did we struggle? Did we make the effort? Did we try? That is the essence of this, of this story. Good, which we continue to commemorate. Then we have the encounter. Yaakov and Esau, they see each other. Oh, there's so much more to say. I'll tell you one other, one other insight on Lama Zetashalashmi because tragically it is in Yanni Dioma. It's uh, contemporarily relevant. It's another insight of Rabbi Salavechik. I don't know if you've noticed, I really like his chumash. <laughs> so he says, Lama Zetashalashmi, not the 
very innovative, novel approach of Rav Chaim Shmulevitz. Rav says, Yaakov was attacked for no apparent reason. When Yaakov asked his attacker for his name, he said, I can't expose my identity. The refusal of the anonymous attacker to identify himself represents one of the most horrible characteristics of our destiny, that the Jew never knows who will attack him. Will it be Airbnb? Will it be Ben and Jerry's? Will it be Hamas with rockets? Who would saw last week? Who would say Airbnb will be practicing such great anti-Semitism? Make no mistake, Airbnb identifying homes in Yehuda v'Shomron, delisting them from their rentals because they occupy territory. When Airbnb has rentals in the most corrupt, vile regions of the world, is nothing short of that hypocrisy, that duplicity is nothing short of blatant anti-Semitism. Blatant anti-Semitism disguised as politics about Israel. So, says Rabbi Salavechik, this angel saying, Lama Zetashalashmi, my identity doesn't matter. Because anti-Semitism comes from every corner. At the turn of the century, writes the Rav, socialist literature claimed that anti-Semitism was a result of capitalism. If capitalism were to be abolished, the same would hold true for anti-Semitism. Yet when the socialists rose to power, they almost immediately became the most virulent anti-Semites in modern times. The anonymity and the unpredictability are the worst aspects of anti-Semitism. A second ominous characteristic of this confrontation was that upon defeat, the anonymous antagonist did not promise Yaakov peace. His silence gave the impression they would meet again at a future date. And at that time, he would be victorious. These two characteristics, anonymity and permanence, constitute the fundamental nature of anti-Semitism. This is why Vayishlach is considered the book of the destiny of the Jew. Because this story also is a confrontation with our enemy who preserves their anonymity and never promises to let up or promises to never let up. Chazal Sayyakov asked for his name because he had an uncertain feeling about the mysterious gentleman. He could not determine what sort of fellow he was. On the one hand, he gave Yaakov the impression of being a great scholar, the Gemara Chulun says. On the other, he gave him the impression of being a poor shepherd, the Medjush Tanchuma. Because Yaakov could not ascertain the person's identity, he asked him for his name. And the answer was, what difference does it make who I am? Whoever I am, I have one mission, and that is to defy you. I am opposed to what you strive for, to come back to Eretz Yisrael and build and develop a people in that land. So says the Rav, don't try to put a name on anti-Semitism. It's not that the socialist or the capitalist or the rich or the poor or the European or the South American. Don't try to put a name and a face and a label on anti-Semitism as if it is narrowly defined exclusively to that name or that face. Lama Zetashalashmi means don't think that anti-Semitism is going to come just from one person or one culture or one belief or one ism, but it's going to come from everywhere. It is part of the Jewish story and the Jewish experience to continue to live to continue to live with it. Yaakov and Esav have this encounter, a fascinating encounter. I think we spoke a couple weeks ago of the notion of coal. We talked about the notion of coal. I don't remember if it was here in another context. Beautiful insight of Rav Kook, that Avram, right when he loses Sarah, Vashem Beirach is Avram Bakol. Avram is blessed with everything. And what do you mean he's blessed with everything? He just lost Sarah. Rav Kook has this interpretation that coal means a panoramic view of the world. Everyone else sees only the here and now, sees that moment, and based on their own experience of that moment, they determine the whole world is bad, the whole world is evil, the whole world is this. I stubbed my toe, I tripped on the thing, so there's no God. Whereas Avram had a panoramic view of life. He saw coal, 
He saw Hashem integrated into everything. He saw everything. And that capacity to live at the 30,000 foot level and to see with a panoramic feature, that capacity Avram had, he gave to Yitzchak. And he gave Yitzchak every, his coal. And Yitzchak gave that sense of coal to Yaakov. And those are the three words. Bakol, Mikol, Kol. Harachaman, at the end of Benchuk, we say, Harachaman, Hashem, who gave coal to Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov, give coal to us. We too want to feel we have everything. We see you everywhere. That we're not narrowly in the moment, but we have a panoramic view of life. We ask for that sense of coal. And now when Yaakov and Esav reunite and they meet one another, what happens? What does Yaakov, what does, Yit, what does Esav say? Esav says, Yeshli, Yeshli Rav. I've got a lot, I'm doing okay. My stocks are all right. I've got a little real estate. You know, Yishli Rav, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. What, is, what does Yaakov say? Yaakov says, Yishli Kol, I've got it all. I've got, because I have, not I have it all, Yaakov's the man of wrestling, struggle. And yet he says, Yishli Kol, I have it all, because when I have Hashem, when I see Hashem in everything, when I see everything is for a reason, nothing is random, a chance, when I believe that everything is orchestrated from above, from the divine, then I have it all. No matter what the struggle, no matter what the loss, no matter the wrestling match, no matter the injury, even when he walks away injured, when he has kol yeshli kol, when he believes and he submits that there's a plan to everything, that Hashem has everything, then, then he feels I have everything. On the other hand, where does Yaakov go right after this reunion? V'yakov nasa sukosa v'ayven lo bias. Where does he go? I love to say this word on the holiday of Sukkot. Yaakov goes to a place called Sukkos. Why is he going to Sukkot? Why is he going to Sukkot? Because what's the conversation between him and Esav? What does Esav say to him? He raises his eyes and he sees the women and children. Who are these to you? What? He says, I don't understand. We grew up, I was the hunter in the field trying to amass wealth and fame and material possessions. And you, brother, my little brother, where did you spend all day? In the base Medrash. You were the Yishtam Yoshev Olam. What happened? You were the spiritual pursuer. You were the man of Ruchnius. You didn't care about the physical material world. And now I've met you 34 years later and here you've got this enormous caravan Women, children, wealth, assets. What happened? Did you lose your way since you left the base medrash? Since you became a balabas, have you realigned and recalibrated your values and priorities? There's nothing like getting Musa from Ace of Harasha. <laughs> the medrash says, where does Yaakov go right after getting that Musa from Esav? Where does he go? The Yaakov Nasas Sukosa. He goes to Sukkot, even though bias. He realizes it's time to spend some time in the Sukkah. The mission of the Sukkah is that what matters is not the house, what matters is the home. What matters are not the things, what matters are the people. So he goes Davka to Sukkot. He goes to Sukkot. Then we have... Let's see, we're barely going to get through the overview of the parasha. Then he has the encounter with Shechem. Vayava Yaakov Shalem Ir Shechem. He comes to Shechem. His daughter Dina is abducted. 
his sons pull off a tremendous uh, operation. They deceive the people of Shechem and they attack. And there's a big debate among our commentaries here. Maybe we'll study this next year, maybe another time, about why Yaakov. Is Yaakov disappointed in what they do? They kill the whole people of Shechem. They say, if you want to marry our daughter, you like our sister so much, you have to all convert to join our people. So circumcise yourselves. And then, no problem. And the third day after they circumcise, when they're the most vulnerable and weak, they attack, they eliminate, they destroy Shechem. Is that like a moment of swelling with Jewish pride? Ah, oh, kishmak, look at these IDF. Look what they can do. Or is that a moment to recoil and say, what a mistake. You aggravated, you agitated the enemy. What are you, crazy? So there's different Mephoshim. The Ramban has a long arichos here. The Ramban quotes the Rambam. The Rambam says, first of all, isn't it unjust? How do they kill all the people of Shechem for the act of, of a few? So the Rambam says, really, when Dina was abducted, the whole Shechem should have intervened. And when they didn't, they too became liable. They too became liable. The Maharal says, in his Gurari, in his commentary on Rashi, the Maharal says, this is called war. What right do you ever have in war? Murder is prohibited. It's a cardinal sin. So why in the context of war is murder permissible? Because once you get to war, it's no longer murder. It's not called murder when it's in the context of war. It's called defense. So the Maharal says, Shechem declared war on the Jewish people. You can't look at it as an isolated incident that they abducted the sister, now how could you wipe everyone out? You have to look at it as there's a declaration of war, and in the context of responding to a declaration of war, there's a different set of rules. There's not the ordinary prohibition of, of murder. Misalavechkin is Chumash also has a comment here. He says, The crime was committed by only one individual, Shechem ben Chamor, but apparently the brothers considered the entire town to be hostile to the household of Yaakov. If one commits a crime in the community, does not ostracize him. Or if one preaches bigotry and hatred and the community does not condemn him, isolate him, or try to eliminate him, then a conspiracy of silence exists, which is just as culpable as a conspiracy of action. This battle constituted a battle of survival for the Jew. Yaakov's family was a small number of people, while Shechem was a city with thousands of inhabitants. The minority would have inevitably assimilated into the majority. Yaakov did not condemn the killing of the population of Shechem on moral grounds. He only argued about, against it based on practical considerations. When you think about the application of this several applications, the political one I'm going to stay away from, but the application of this 500 rockets last week in 36 hours. So, and, and we could all be grateful as we're watching the evolving political considerations in Israel, but we should all be grateful we're not the Prime Minister having to decide whether to go into Gaza or not. What a complicated decision it is. Because our enemies have embedded themselves among citizens, among civilians, in hospitals, and schools, and playgrounds, one can't go in without either risking the lives of our soldiers or killing many, many civilians and suffering the wrath of the world. So you have to ask yourselves, you know, there are people who advocate, just turn off the power to Gaza. If there are rockets coming from Gaza, you turn off all the power till they stop. Ah, how could you do that? Collective punishment. Collective punishment is unjust, it's immoral, it's against international law. So this insight of the Rav, or this insight of the accountability of the people of Shechem is it's not collective punishment. If you collectively have allowed and not intervened in the, in the horrible attack, then you're not an innocent bystander. 
It's not collective punishment against innocent civilians. I'm not telling you that I advocate for that. I don't have an opinion on it. I'm not an expert on it. I'm just saying it's interesting how the Chumash of so long ago continues to inform the current events of the Jewish people today. In many, many ways. And here is yet another example how we confront anti-Semitism, how we confront our enemies, and the whole notion of collective punishment. What is the Jewish view of collective punishment? Is collective punishment immoral and unjust? Or do the collective deserve to be punished when they have sat idly by and allowed terrorists to embed themselves and shoot at our civilians? Maybe they're not so innocent. Maybe it's not collective. Maybe the collective punishment is, is just. We see these issues remain relevant to our time. Yaakov then goes to Beit El. There we have the death of Rivka, of his mother, and of Dvora Menekes Rivka. Who is this Dvora Menekes Rivka? Why are we hearing about her now? Why do we care that she died? What is her significance? We talked about that last year in the Parsha class. You could listen online. And right afterwards, Yaakov, God gives Yaakov a new name, which is very peculiar. This was what we were going to study in depth together. Why does Yaakov give him a new name? Why does God give him a new name right now? He already got a new name. It's the same new name. Yaakov to Yisrael. And once again we have here, You're no longer going to be Yaakov, you're going to be Yisrael. Yeah, we covered that God. The angel, remember, he gave me my new name. I got my driver's license changed. We're good. Why, why, God, why are you bringing that up again? So I guess for next year, why does Hashem bring it up again here? Why, by the way, is Yaakov the only one of our patriarchs that even after his name is changed, we continue to use the old name? In fact, the halacha is that once Avram became Avraham, you're not allowed to call him Avram. And once Sarai became Sarah, you're not allowed to call her Sarai. And yet here we have an exception that Yaakov became Yisrael and we still call him Yaakov. When is he Yaakov and when is he Yisrael? I'll tell you, a few years ago we had a brilliant man and brilliant speaker, and I say that not only because his mother might be here, Ari Sacker, I don't know if she's here, but um, he's one of the scientists who developed Iron Dome, invented Iron Dome. And I expected him to get up Shabbos morning with great pride in Iron Dome, this miraculous invention that American scientists and the whole world said was impossible. You have a, you have a primitive rocket that's wavering a speed, a trajectory, and you're going to design something that's going to predict and anticipate where it's going to go, meet it in the air, blow it up, and save people from being hurt? Imagine last week with no Iron Dome. 500 rockets with no Iron Dome. He invented Iron Dome. But he stood up and he said, we shouldn't be proud of Iron Dome. Because Iron Dome represents the Jewish people as a Yaakov, not as a Yisrael. Because the Mephoshim explained Yaakov is when we are vulnerable, when we are pathetic, when we're grabbing the heel and holding on. Yisrael is Kisarisa. Yisrael is when we are Sarvinagid, when we are princes, aristocracy, when we are in a leadership role, when we're strong. He said, Iron Dome, that, that says we accept that you're going to continue to shoot 500 missiles and we've, we've developed using our brilliance and our cloud and iron, and iron yarmulke to protect us from it. But that's Yaakov. That's not Yisrael. It was shocking the way he spoke, but a brilliant insight. And what it takes for the Jewish people to be in a place of Yisrael, not just a defensive place of, of Yaakov. But we'll pick up, I guess, next year. Why is Yaakov's old name still used, not just his new name? Why is God giving him the name again now? Why is God giving him the name again now when he already got the name at the end of the wrestling match with the, with the angel. 
And uh, hopefully we'll remember that that's where we're starting next year.